0: This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hi, and welcome to Episode 17 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina, every podcast, I interview genomics experts who are shaping our understanding of science and nature. All the air that we breathe comes from plants and algae. Plants and algae are eukaryotes, meaning that their cells contain specialized membrane-bound organelles. These subcellular structures serve to compartmentalize important functions for the cell. For example, The nucleus is the organelle where the cell's DNA is kept and gets interpreted. Mitochondria use oxygen to produce energy in the form of ATP molecules, and chloroplasts convert solar energy into energy-storing sugar molecules, like glucose. But where did these organelles come from? Well, you might be surprised to know that some organelles contain their own unique DNA molecules. According to the current endosymbiotic theory of eukaryotic cell evolution, eukaryotic cell organelles were once free-living, single-celled prokaryotes captured by other prokaryotic cells through a process called endosymbiosis. Today I'm at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I'm talking with Drs. Debashish Bhattacharya and Dana Price. Debashish is Distinguished Professor of Biochemistry and Microbiology. And Dana is research professor in the School of Environmental and Biological Sciences. They use genomics and bioinformatics tools to understand algal evolution, endosymbiosis, and marine biodiversity. They explained how interest in organismal biology led to genomic studies of single-celled eukaryotic organisms. First, Debashish.
1: Yeah, so it started. Uh... I'm living by the ocean in Nova Scotia in Canada and so I was really excited by the marine environment and I started with working on seaweeds and sea urchins and and sort of large organisms and then as we started to use DNA techniques it uh, became clear that we need to have faster growing better models and so over the years We've gotten smaller and smaller. That is, our models have gotten smaller and smaller. And so we've gone from working on kelps to working on algae and protists that are in the 20 to 50 micron range. So that's sort of the direction of how our science has gone. We've done better with smaller models to ask bigger questions. My formal training is in,
2: is in entomology, but I had a fairly lengthy background in high-performance computing, and I was able to translate that information technology, high-performance computing background into the genomic and extensive phylogenetic analyses that are required in the lab to elucidate these kinds of, of changes uh, in the genome, and to assemble genomes, and to do
0: comparative analyses among gigabases of DNA data. Debashish introduced algae as a model system and he explained the impact algae have on our environment.
1: The way that we can most easily introduce algae is to say about one half of the air we breathe comes from algae, the other half comes from terrestrial plants. And so if you can think about plants as being the very, very large multicellular descendants of single-celled organisms, well, algae are those single-celled ancestors. They're common on land, but they dominate the world's oceans and a lot of other aquatic ecosystems. And in fact, one of the Groups of algae that people may have heard about are called diatoms, and they produce about 20 to 30 percent of air, and they're very important primary producers. Many are single-celled, but they're very complex, and they're as highly derived as plants, except that under their evolutionary constraints of where they live and how they live, they've remained single-celled.
0: debashish and Dana use algae to study endosymbiosis. Endosymbiosis is a close and long-term biological association of two organisms, in which one organism, called the endosymbiont, lives inside the other organism.
1: The word endosymbiosis has been around for over 100 years, and the notion that you can have cells that are composites of two different lineages, that is, a cell inside of another cell. And this was a very heretical idea for a long time. But it turned out that when people were able to find that there was multiple compartments, for example, in a plant cell, there are three compartments, the mitochondrion, the chloroplast, and the nucleus, and each of these contains its own DNA. That was shocking, and it showed that those DNAs must have arisen from some source. And after a lot of research, it turns out that the nucleus is the genome that has been inherited for the history of that lineage, but the two organelles, the plastid or the chloroplast and the mitochondrion, are in fact derived once free-living bacteria that were captured and then subjugated to become energy-producing organelles, and the process whereby... These cells were captured and became organelles called endosymbiosis, that is the uptake of a foreign cell and its reduction to a DNA compartment that has very important and specific features in the eukaryotic cell.
0: Dana discussed the impact that Next Generation Sequencing, or NGS, has had on our understanding of endosymbiosis.
2: Well, sequencing allowed us to assign a phylogenetic lineage, a shared common ancestry between these endosymbionts, meaning the, the rickettsia-like mitochondria and the plastid. So the, the plastid, we know, was, was uh, originally a free-living cyanobacteria, uh, and the way we we're able to achieve that or to arrive at that hypothesis uh, was to obtain genome information from these, these organelles and then place them in a larger tree of life and find that they were actually grouping with... Bacteria, cyanobacteria, and, and the rickettsia.
0: So eukaryotic cells and organelles evolved through the process of endosymbiosis. It sounds like a remarkable biological process, and you might assume that it's a rare event. But studies using NGS of single-celled algae suggest it's relatively common in nature.
1: The real revelation that's happened in the, in the last 10 years or so with the um, advent of next-generation sequencing has been that for a long time endosymbiosis was thought to be some sort of a remarkable event in which a cell was captured and became this organelle that we study now. When we first actually applied next generation sequencing techniques to the first single single-celled plankton that we gathered in the ocean, that is we used a method called whole genome amplification to generate enough DNA from one cell that came from the waters off Maine, we found that that single cell was a metagenome. That is, we could actually reconstruct the genomes of the food it was eating, and in one case, a virus that was infecting it. So if you can imagine endosymbiosis is this process of one cell captured by another, we can actually then go into nature and reconstruct genomes of cells within cells we actually have a way into understanding how these processes might actually happen.
0: Mitochondria and chloroplasts contain relatively small amounts of DNA compared to the size of a typical prokaryotic genome. So if these organelles were once free-living prokaryotic cells, what happened to their genomes? DeBashish explained that most of the organelle's DNA got transferred to the host nucleus to overcome something called Muller's ratchet a process by which asexual organisms accumulate harmful and permanent mutations
1: endosymbiotic gene transfer or egt refers to the movement of genes from the endosymbiont to the nucleus of the host and this happens in every case in which a cell is taken up and retained what happens is that cell is then separated from its cousins and it can no longer exchange dna and once it's trapped inside of the cell then dna mistakes happen through replication There's a process called Muller's ratchet, which acts on the genome of the endosymbiont. So over time, that genome gets reduced. For the really important genes that are lost, they end up in the nucleus because the nucleus undergoes sexual reproduction and can actually correct errors through recombination. It's a complicated story, but ultimately what happens is that for every cell that's captured and retained inside of another cell, the fate of its genome is reduction. It's going to get reduced because of, of this ratchet-like uh, mutations that happen because that genome is not able to recombine with other members of its species. And so every time we see this, so when we look at, for example, the genome of an alga or a plant, it's about 200,000 base pairs in the chloroplast of the plastid, the organelle. Yet we know that the source of that, of that organelle is a free-living cyanobacterium with a genome likely about 3 million base pairs. So what has happened is that that plastic genome has been reduced, and about 800 of those genes that were on the plastid are now resident in the host of the algal plant.
0: That's really interesting, but is endosymbiosis relevant for human health? DeBashish discussed how the genomics of single-celled algae can help us better understand the complex interactions taking place in the human gut microbiome.
1: If we can actually sequence single cells and identify pathogens, we can actually do a survey of natural pathogens in situ inside of cells. So this can provide a really powerful way without having to culture the pathogens in the lab, we can actually survey and look at what the distributions of those pathogens are and actually reconstruct their genomes so we know what to look for when we're trying to look for control agents. Now on the human health side, I think that the field of biotic interactions is actually exactly what the human microbiome field is. So bacteria don't reside inside of other bacteria. So we're not, when we talk about endosymbiosis, we're talking about eukaryotes. In fact, we don't know how many eukaryotes there might be in, in the human microbiome, but we do know that the sorts of complex interactions that we see in nature happening in a, in a mill of seawater is happening in our guts. And so by understanding the rules that govern these sorts of complex genetic interactions, we can actually start to understand the rules that guide a large part of how nature works.
0: Since algae are found in the oceans, I asked Deboschish and Dana whether NGS-based approaches could help us to understand the effects of ocean warming associated with climate change. First, Dana. What we can do
2: with microbiology and NGS is track the micro-changes that occur in populations and algae, say, that are, are from the North Atlantic and maybe from the South Pacific, and analyze those from either a population standpoint or from single cells and elucidate whether or not
1: they actually carry completely different suites of endosymbionts. One of the areas in which we've been doing a lot of work is coral evolution. And so corals are, as everyone knows, really, really important parts of the ecosystem that support lots of economies and a lot of people, but they're under threat now because, uh, mostly because of subtle temperature uh, changes in the oceans. Even one or two degrees increase in the temperature can have really terrible effects.
0: The Great Barrier Reef is composed of billions of coral animals and is the largest coral reef system in the world. However, it's under threat from many environmental pressures, including climate change and warming oceans. NGS is being used to help understand how corals might potentially adapt to rising ocean temperatures.
1: By 94% of the Great Barrier Reef is endangered and has undergone this thing called coral bleaching. Well, bleaching is actually the expulsion of the symbiont, which is the alga that lives inside of the coral animal. So some of the research we do with our partners in Australia is to do genomics using NGS of the symbiodinium alga that is the source of how the coral is able to live. And we want to understand whether particular types of these algal symbionts confer a kind of resistance to higher temperatures than others whether there's ways in which we can introduce these sorts of symbionts into coral animals that we wish to propagate. So there's a lot of interest now amongst many parts of the world trying to figure out, can we design a coral that is robust, that can be transplanted, that can be used to rebuild reefs? I asked
0: Dana whether single-cell genomics of algae poses unique challenges. He explained how computational power and bioinformatics pipelines need to be integrated with a firm understanding of biology.
2: So you have to understand the biology before you can design a bioinformatic pipeline or a bioinformatic analysis that works to answer your particular question. So if you don't know how a plastid and a cell communicate or how a mitochondria and a cell communicate, then you won't feasibly be able to design a bioinformatic pipeline that could target those particular secretory pathways or enzymes or cellular signals that would occur in that scenario. Yeah, the CPU horsepower has to be present. So every time that we invent a new sequencing technology, whether it's the jump from Sanger to 454, from 454 to Illumina, the processors have to evolve with it. We started out with, you know, very, very short read technology that were 30 base pair reads or something with the ABI, which we could assemble, but we had to have, you know, very, very large memory to do that. Now we need more processors with smaller memory to be able to distribute those jobs across very large clusters,
0: De believes that combining NGS with sophisticated cell sampling techniques will help us to understand more about these eukaryotic genomes and how these single-celled organisms live. Dana believes that NGS will fundamentally alter the concept of species.
1: I think one of the hallmarks of what uh, next-generation sequencing from single-cell genomics to metagenomics to metatranscriptomics to metaproteomics what all of these methods are really supporting is is working within the environment. So I think what's going to come along in the future is there's going to be a real explosion of sophisticated methods to sample cells in situ, whether it's in, um, in a liter of seawater, whether it's in a pond, whether it's associated with the root of a plant. I think we have to get beyond reducing complex eukaryotes to models that are easy for us to understand. We have to actually figure out ways that we can start to understand how they live in their natural environment and what their genomes are good for. That is unraveling the function of this large chunk of the genome for which we have no knowledge is really going to be a massive challenge. And that's going to be solved by methods that allow you to understand gene function in situ, in nature, under conditions that the cells are seeing, that we're not going to be able to replicate in the lab or even know that those conditions exist. So this is, I think, one of the major areas of growth in the, in the next 10 years.
2: Our understanding or definition of the species concept is going to change pretty radically. There are no two bacteria, you know, that are essentially exactly the same that come from, from different environments. We've learned now that eukaryotes can have their own unique suites of genes, whether they're horizontally transferred from the environment or acquired through into symbiosis particularly eukaryotes that we may classify as the same species can have radically different and divergent genotypes when we go look at their genomes from a molecular standpoint.
0: Finally, I asked our guests about their motivation for doing this kind of research. For both Dana and Abashish, it's all about creativity.
2: I always felt like writing a paper or giving a research talk was making something from nothing. And that to me was always very satisfying, whether it was a very simple question or whether it was part of a, a research network with 50 people or, or hundred authors on the paper, you are creating an idea that didn't exist six months or a year ago. And that was always very
1: satisfying. Anything that requires you or allows you to make and create a world in your head that is unique to yourself and that you can use as a, as a source of ideas To me, it's all about creativity. And I I think the moments where we spend as scientists alone, to me, are the most interesting and important, where you can try to create this world in your head. And it really helps you understand it and to put it down into words and so on. It's very exciting. I I think that writing is one of the great joys. And if uh, we get to do that and enjoy doing it, then I think it sustains a career easily. Because uh, you're kind of like a a writer for nature. And uh, that seems pretty exciting to me.
0: So NGS has helped us understand endosymbiosis and how organelles and eukaryotic cells evolved from bacteria. NGS has also helped demonstrate that this process is common and may unlock knowledge that beneficially impacts our health and the health of the environment. But that's all for now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Professors Strew Grant and Andrew Wells at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We'll be discussing genomics of pediatric diseases here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.